the message conveyed by global media can be a powerful one, useful in influencing public perception and shaping politics, local media and information environments. To illustrate, let's begin today's podcast with a clip. Is the Azov Battalion getting access to US weapons? Uh, not that I'm aware of, um, but if you have information, uh, I'd seek unanimous consent to enter into the record the Global Times investigative report that uh, indicate that talks about training. It's uh, from the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensics Research Lab, uh, citing that the Azov Battalion was even getting stuff as far back as 2018. This is United States Florida Representative Matt Gates at the House Armed Service Committee attempting to cite Chinese propaganda as a reason to cut defense assistance to the Ukraine. Is this the? I'm sorry. Is this the Global Times from China? No, this is. Well, that's what you read. Yeah, it might be. Yeah, would that be a reason? Uh, I, you... I, as a general matter, I don't take Beijing's propaganda. Well, no, no. Yeah, but just value. tell me if the if the allegation is true or false. I mean, uh, it... I don't have any evidence one way or the okay. other. As a general matter, I don't take Beijing's propaganda at face value. Welcome fair, to fair Asia enough. Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia. I'm Matt Smith, and controlling the media narrative, usually through the influence of your own state-run media outlets, is of great interest to China. The superpower is actively seeking to insert itself into many other countries' elections, social media, media, and overall politics. Today we have a recording of a live Asia Rising podcast. Our guest is Joshua Kolansik, Senior Fellow for Southeast Asia on the Council of Foreign Relations, and author of Beijing's Global Media Offensive, China's Uneven Campaign to Influence Asia and the World. Thank you for joining me, Josh. Thanks for having me. So can we begin by examining the premise of your book? Uh, China seems to have made a deliberate engagement with the media to influence politics in other countries. Is this a recent thing? And what's behind all of these efforts? Let's start by what's behind it. You know, I think over the last 10 years, and particularly under the leadership of Xi Jinping, China has long felt, but has even more intensely felt as it's become more powerful, that they lack what they call discourse power in the world or sufficient discourse power that global narratives about a wide range of issues, including many issues about China, are primarily shaped by the leaders of liberal democracies, but also even more importantly, the media coming from liberal democracies. So that includes, you know, the New York Times, but it also includes The Guardian and the BBC and the ABC in Australia and the Nikkei and the Yomir Shimbun, and we can make a whole list, right? Mm. And they feel that, and this has been an objective of Xi Jinping from early on, that China needs to have significantly more discourse power to have its own say about a wide range of global narratives, to have its own say about how China is portrayed, as well as certainly a primary objective is to basically defend the policies and defend the Communist Party. So that's always been an objective, but Xi Jinping has heightened that as an objective. My book doesn't only look at media as a tool of influence, but it's it's one of the major factors. Mm. China has always been interested in promoting its state media abroad, but until the last 10 to 15 years, it hadn't invested enough to really try to make it a credible alternative. Now, I'm not saying it is a credible alternative, but they have invested huge sums in three of their primary major state media outlets. China Global Television Network, which used to be one of the CCTVs, China Radio International, and Xinhua, their newswire. 
And for a while in the late 2000s and early 2010s, this money was being poured into, I think, trying to make some of them something akin to Al Jazeera. In other words, an outlet that based in an authoritarian state that wouldn't cover that authoritarian state fairly or independently, but would become somewhat significantly respected about a lot of its coverage of other global affairs. China hired a huge number of quality local journalists in a lot of developing countries to work for CGTN and these other outlets. They hired good journalists, some good journalists in the United States and in other uh, liberal democracies. They put an enormous amount of funds into production values and making them a lot of the shows, particularly in CGTN, seem like they're real debates. I ultimately conclude in the book, and this is contrary to what some others have concluded, that CGTN and CRI have not really been very successful wielding this discourse power because they lost a lot of these quality journalists as China became much more authoritarian at home and more unpredictable because of the switch from consensus authoritarianism to one-man rule. A lot of journalists quit because they just no longer had any idea what might get them in trouble, and also because a lot of liberal democracies, including the United States and the UK, began to crack down on state media outlets. And in the United States, for example, journalists who work for Chinese state media outlets have to register as agents of foreign influence, which is something journalists don't want to do. Mm. But in the book, I argue that Xinhua alone is a very powerful force for discourse power and is likely to become even more of a success in the future in terms of China having a say in global narratives, China pushing its uh, line on a whole range of things and many, many more news outlets around the world taking news coverage, news stories from China rather than taking them from the AP or Reuters or et cetera. Okay. We'll delve into that a little bit later. That was a good kind of outline of the unevenness of this kind of venture that China is undertaking. But can you tell me a bit more about the motive? What's driving them to do this? There's a desire, I think, to influence the discourse that you couldn't achieve just by sending out a media release and hoping for for engagement through that way with the media by establishing their own media outlets with those kind of aims how much are they trying to influence the discourse on what china is doing and how china is perceived yeah i mean i think the state media is part of it and like i said the goal is to influence the discourse power but other goals too one goal is to encourage self-censorship about the CCP and certain things the CCP does in a wide range of places. So in addition to the major state media, I talk a lot in the book about how in several ways, either by having state-linked actual companies or by having citizens who happen to be pro-Beijing in those countries or other methods, Beijing has now basically shifted virtually all the Chinese language media almost everywhere in the world, and certainly in Southeast Asia, to a large extent in Australia, New Zealand, and the United States and Canada, to a situation in which people who are primarily getting their news from Chinese language media, and that's quite a large population, particularly in Southeast Asia, and and not an insignificant population in the United States, Canada, Australia, have very few outlets that are providing independent coverage of China. So that's another tool that they're using. But like I said, I mean, the motivation is one to have their say 
The second motivation is to shut people up or to shut down negative narratives about China, to encourage self-censorship in key communities around the world. And uh, in recent years, I mean, I think there's been a concerted effort, at least before the zero COVID sort of fiasco, to use these outlets as well as a whole wide range of other tools like speeches, normal diplomacy, the type of things that actual diplomats would do, ambassadors, talks, etc., to promote China's model of development. Xi Jinping is really the first Chinese leader to embrace the idea since Mao that China has a model of development that is one that might be appealing and could be appealing to other countries. It was sort of talked about by a lot of Chinese scholars in the 90s and 2000s, but they would always say, and the official line at the time was that China let all countries choose their own form of development. But Xi Jinping has shifted that a fair amount. He has said quite a number of times in public that China has a developmental model that other countries could do well to follow. China's established training academies, essentially, for officials from a lot of developing countries, um, as well as journalists, primarily from developing countries. So that's certainly another factor. Now, we'll see, like, a lot of that shut down during COVID, the training academies for officials and journalists, and the idea of China as sort of ideal of effective managerial governance combined with effective authoritarian capitalism was punctured by some of their challenges with COVID. But if you go back and look, for example, early in COVID, in like February and March, you'll find a lot of, for example, U.S. commentators, and certainly the U.S. was not handling COVID well. At some point, we had the president telling people essentially to drink bleach. But you will find a lot of U.S. commentators essentially saying that China has an effective form of managerial governance, and that's why they're handling COVID well, at least at that time. So that narrative is out there. And Xi Jinping has promoted that narrative in a way that Pu and Jiang and Dong did not. Mm. China would make the argument that these efforts, these media outlets that they're using and promoting is not too different to other state media outlets, such as the BBC or our own ABC here in Australia. So is there a problem of credibility and editorial independence, though, that means that anything that comes out of the Chinese state media is not going to be taken seriously by a vast majority of the global audience that might encounter it. Except for Xinhua. That's Mm. been a major problem with CGTN and CRI. The problem that you have if they wanted to be like Al Jazeera is Al Jazeera is based in an authoritarian monarchy, but it's a small authoritarian monarchy that there isn't a lot of coverage of of that authoritarian monarchy, Qatar, you know, unless you're talking about natural gas reporters. So Qatar was able to create Al Jazeera and have Al Jazeera do credible, excellent coverage. Al Jazeera in Southeast Asia does excellent work. You know, Mm. they do good work in the United States. They do excellent reporting in Latin America. They do some good reporting in the Middle East. That at least is colored a little bit by Qatar's relationships with other Middle Eastern countries. But it's just not possible really for China to have such a channel like that because, A, there's so many more issues that can be related to China. You know, a slim number of issues can relate to Qatar and 
I'm not saying they say this, but I'm sure there's some message delivered, like, don't cover that. Don't write some stories about the royal family or the migrant workers who died, you know, in building the World Cup. But so many things can be related to China in every realm, the economy, politics, military strategy, everything. You would wind up with so many issues that could be linked to China that reporters are scared to write about. Mm. And so increasingly, whereas CGTN and CRI produced some decent stuff eight or nine years ago, has sort of moved back into pretty turgid propagandistic stuff. And China's own obviously terrible record on dealing with its own journalists, which is much worse under Xi Jinping as compared to the prior two leaders who, you know, weren't advocates of a free press, but there were outlets that were doing quality work on financial journalism and some investigative reporting, particularly in some of the southern provinces. So that totally undermines it. Mm. Another limiting factor besides the number of liberal democracies imposing restrictions, some liberal democracies simply kicking China's state media and, and some of the Russia's state media off the air in the UK, in Australia to some extent, and in other places. With Xinhua, the reason why Xinhua is more powerful is Xinhua is a news wire and it has content sharing agreements with tons of news outlets all over the world, including in liberal democracies, but in many developing countries. And Xinhua is often offered free or very cheap compared to the other major global news wires. In a place like Thailand, you have a lot of really quality news outlets, including the best news company in the country, which is called the Matichong Group, taking Xinhua as a news wire because, let's face it, you know, journalism is the dying business all over the world, basically. And in Thailand, just like everywhere else, revenues are down and Xinhua is an affordable news wire. And so what you have is Xinhua copy often being put into quality local news outlets. Sometimes it's labeled as Xinhua, sometimes it's labeled as agency, sometimes it's not labeled at all. And most people who are not academics or in the media, and this isn't a knock on them, this is just the way it is, don't pay much attention to the bylines of most stories that they read. Hmm. And so you have Xinhua increasingly being used as copy in a whole wide range of news outlets, sort of surreptitiously in a way. And Xinhua is expanding too. And so in that way, Xinhua alone is, I think, a, a very powerful tool for the Chinese government. Okay. So what about if we could change the topic now to China buying up Chinese language media in other countries? Uh, can you talk about that a bit? How extensive is it? What is the objective here? And is there a risk of those who are informed by this media getting a more pro-Beijing view of what's happening in the world? Well, I think it's almost virtually complete, but we have to differentiate between certain things. There are situations in which Chinese state companies have made investments in Chinese language media in other countries. So that's an external actor making an investment and one that could be potentially stopped by law that treats foreign investments in communications and information with the same degree of scrutiny. Um, and this is coming, you know, I think in Europe and the US too, as liberal democracy historically treated foreign investment in sensitive sectors that had defense implications. So you have that one actual state companies. Then you have a second factor, which is that some of the 
major global Chinese media outlets that aren't technically state media that in the past, they weren't going to slam Xi Jinping or Hu Jintao or whoever, but they were a little bit more independent and produced some more reportage, particularly Phoenix TV, a global giant, and some others that are based in Hong Kong and have satellite news outlets in Canada and some other places because of the way China's become more authoritarian and Phoenix TV actually, part of it has been bought by a Chinese state company. Those outlets are also now no longer producing real credible anything. Mm. And then you have a third category, which there isn't really much you can do about if you're concerned about Beijing tilt of Chinese language media. Someone who's a citizen of Australia or the United States or whatever, who, whether they truly are pro-Beijing because they support China for whatever reason, maybe they are pro-Beijing because it helps their business interests, whatever, they buy up a local news outlet and the editorial line changes from independent coverage to a essentially pro-Beijing line. I mean, there's not really much you can do about that unless in your country you have some sort of fairness in media law, which doesn't really exist in most liberal democracies. And I'm not sure how you would enforce that. The U.S. used to have something like that, but it's been gone for 35 years. Mm. There's nothing illegal about that. I mean, you can buy up a news outlet. You know, I mean, Rupert Murdoch buys up news outlets and they tend to conform to the views of uh, Rupert Murdoch. That's sure. not illegal. Yeah. But the long and the short of it is in most countries where there are in Southeast Asia, in the United States, in Canada, in New Zealand, in Australia, even in Singapore, where the government, Singapore press holdings basically controls the press, you ha have a very, 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 very small amount of independent reportage left on China. There's some in Taiwan. There was some in Hong Kong that's basically being killed. There's a little bit in North America, but it's very small. A lot of the Chinese language media, which is very pro-Beijing, then gets filtered through WeChat. WeChat is not a, per se a news outlet, but it serves as an aggregator. People send each other these articles on WeChat. There are WeChat groups and a huge number of Chinese readers and speakers in these other countries get their information through WeChat, the super app. Okay, so as someone who has been keeping an eye on these effects globally, can you talk about the Australia context in particular, which I'm, I'm sure will be of interest to a lot of people listening? There's quite a lot of negative sentiment towards China, but a large Chinese-speaking population as well. So what have you noticed about how these efforts are being applied towards Australia in particular? Australia, I mean, I think was both heavily targeted by China for influence in a whole wide range of ways, which I think at this point, many Australians are probably pretty familiar with. And earlier and more intensively than say, in some of the ways than the United States or Canada or certainly European countries. But by contrast, a lot of the lessons taken from Australia in terms of what happened, but also the response by the Australian government and how effective the response has been, whether the response has gone too far or not. And to get into broader geopolitical issues, the way that the Australian government under Morrison and now under Labour has responded to other types of influence, like particularly economic coercion, Australia is, I think, seen by a lot of other major liberal democracies, by the US, by Canada, 
as kind of a test case. And I think Australia and China experts have put Australia out as a test case and are sort of marketing Australia as a test case, both because I think it's true that Australia faced a lot of these things before, but also because probably it allows them to talk about their experience and sell their experience, but that's fine. Um, everyone, you know, I'm selling a book. Um, so I think Australia was earlier targeted along with New Zealand. New Zealand was much slower to respond. New Zealand's response has still not been as thorough. And so Australia is a good example of both things that are now happening more in the US and Canada, for example, in Europe, and Australia has a lot of lessons to learn from how it responded. Okay, um, I'll be opening the questions up to the audience in just a second. Uh, I've just got one final question for you, Josh, before we do that. What you've outlined, I think, is a very uneven effort on China's part to engage in this kind of methodology. But is it something that we should be concerned of as liberal democracies? And if so, what steps should be taken to counteract these trends? I definitely think it's a concern because there's a lot of things to be worried about. I mean, let's just step back a bit and say, to be fair, many of these things, not all of them, but many of these things have been done by liberal democracies too in the past. In the Cold War, the United States' own state media outlets like Voice of America were essentially propaganda outlets. Now that's no longer true. Voice of America and Radio Free Asia operate independently and have charters that protect their independence. But certainly in, in the Cold War and today in some places, the United States intervenes and certainly intervenes directly in politics in some places. So I don't want to absolve you know, liberal democracy of this, but I think the concern is from the state media side, were particularly Xinhua to become much more widely used you would be have a lot of news outlets around the world simply getting propaganda and running propaganda about China. And Xinhua is not, you know, as compared to the AP or Reuters or Bloomberg or whoever, an outlet that has any editorial independence at all. So that's one problem. Second problem is in terms of universities, and this has been discussed at, you know, ad nauseum, I know in Australia, I know people have written books about it, I've read them. The concern about self-censorship about China and universities and Chinese government has pressed very hard on students of Chinese ethnicity, even if they're not Chinese nationals, the Chinese government seems to view all of the diaspora as somehow having to answer to Beijing, which is, of course, completely ridiculous. Mm. Um, I think third, there's a very significant concern about meddling within elections that's already happened in Australia. It's unclear because Justin Trudeau has given different answers at different times, that it seems like it happened in the 2019 federal elections in Canada. Happened to a small degree in the 2022 midterm election in the United States, but increasingly I think China is targeting local and state officials in the United States because local and state officials often aren't that knowledgeable about some of these issues and don't have the same degree of safeguards and briefings that Congress people and senators have. And then a fourth obvious concern is, were China to have the same amount of discourse power as, say, liberal democracies about, about some issues, it would be fine. I mean, I, you know, I don't think it's a problem for the second most powerful country to have a huge say in global warming or finance or a whole wide range of things. 
But when it comes to having a say in the obfuscation of what has really become a much, much more authoritarian regime and one that is committing abuses, really significant abuses in a whole wide range of places within China, which is frankly scaring its neighbors in Southeast Asia who don't love the United States, but are suddenly attaching themselves strategically to the United States because of their fear of China. China is gaining discourse power over so many of those issues. And you add in disinformation on major platforms, you lose the ability to tell what's true or not about China and the CCP. And that's a huge problem. Mm, thank you very much for that. Uh, we'll now take a couple of questions from the audience. The first question that we'll take is from Ian Lang. Ian, go ahead when you're ready. Hi, Josh. Thanks for presenting today. A lot of the discussion we've got about China and recent literature that your book's entering into looks at China's soft power, I guess, efforts as um, an under-radar attempt to influence uh, liberal democracies. What's really interesting for me in soft power is why has CGTN failed so comprehensively to influence Western liberal medias above the radar in a space where democracy welcomes debate? What do you think? Sure, democracy and the media and in a democracy, the marketplace of ideas and CGTN couldn't be credible. Originally in the United States, for example, they did produce some good stuff social issues. They won some awards. You can go on their site and CGTN America won some awards for some of their documentaries. But then it just turned into turgid propaganda, like I said, because of the unpredictability of the shift to one-man rule and the tightening of the reins from editors in Beijing on everything. They also produced some good stuff in quality reportage in a number of African democracies as well but there's been less of that for the same reason. And I just think that the turgidness of it just turns people off. And you can see that by the viewership figures. I may mean, actually have the viewership figures, not in the United States, because, but I use the United States as freedom of information process. United States government monitors state media in virtually every other country in the world, particularly ones where the United States state media also is active, like Voice of America and Radio Free Asia. And in most places, CGTN had almost no audience. That was contracted out to a Gallup, an independent contractor. So I think we have evidence of that. It's also possible that CGTN, instead of taking the Al Jazeera route, they could have taken the Russia Today or the RT route. Now, Russia Today is also curtailed in most liberal democracies because of the war in Ukraine. But Russia Today had also gained quite a sub substantial audience in the United States and other liberal democracies by embracing a fairly freewheeling and often conspiratorial style, but being willing to put on the air people who were well-known figures. They might be figures from far left or far right, but they were people who were willing to stir the pot. I think that C.G. Chan just wasn't willing to do that either because there was just too much fear. And if you put someone on the air on CGTN, like Chris Hedges, who was on RT or... Glenn Greenwald, who appeared on RT a number of times, whatever your views of those folks, CGTN would have been worried that they would have stirred the pot in some direction that CGTN just couldn't control and Beijing just couldn't have that. Mm. Mm. Okay, we'll take one final question uh, in the closing minutes of the podcast from the audience. 
Rowan Kallick. Can you ask your question and go ahead when you're ready? Yes. Uh, hi, Josh. I might just uh, preface my remarks by saying that the uh, best known CGTN presenter in Australia would be Chung Lei. And sure. uh, she's in jail, of course, and has been for two and a half years. So that kind of my colour <laughs> views here. Two things. First of all, you mentioned uh, WeChat, which, of course, is the key portal for engaging in information outlets for people who uh, want to receive information in Chinese language. WeChat, of course, fully curated by Tencent's own sensors and behind them by the PRC's net police. So is there any prospect of a rival or a competitor emerging? There's Falun Gong, which has funded several platforms, but that's kind of not entirely acceptable <laughs> by many of us. So is there anything on the horizon that could uh, compete? Otherwise, it seems people who choose to seek information in Chinese language are going through curation by Chinese authorities. I don't really see a alternative to WeChat emerging because WeChat has so many other valuable functions, even for people who live outside the country. Out here in, in America, I know a, a number of Chinese Americans who rely on WeChat for communication with family back in China, you know, as a super app, it has so many other valuable assets. And so I don't really see an alternative. And in terms of there are a few uh, media outlets in the United States that are linked to or essentially controlled by Falun Gong entities. The most prominent of those now is called the Epoch or Epoch Times. But the problem with that is even if you get beyond whatever your views are about Falun Gong is that the Epoch Times, which produces very harsh reporting on China, some of which has been good in the past, has now gone off in a wild direction in which it's been heavily covered in the US and the New York Times. I recommend everyone did a huge, great article about it. They've seen in their business model to produce just wild amounts of misinformation on other subjects unrelated to China. Vaccines, the January 6th insurrection in the United States, um, US politics, all sorts of things. And so they've become essentially a massive font of misinformation about all these other issues unrelated to China. So that has certainly degraded whatever brand they had as reporting independently on China because they're reporting outright misinformation or disinformation on so many other issues. If I could just add one more question, wondering the effect of China denying visas to Western journalists on how China is covered and perceived, because you, you talked at first about China wanting to maybe have a similar influence to uh, the way that uh, Western uh, media can influence uh, people's thinking. Yeah, sure. To the last question, I do talk about that in the book at some length. I mean, I don't think Beijing views that as a problem for its discourse power. It's certainly true. They've shut most of the foreign journalists from liberal democracies out. Most of the big media operations aren't operating there at all, or they're operating skeleton crew, like New York Times and the Washington Post. And instead, you've had like a huge outflow of those journalists instead to Taiwan or Singapore or Seoul. But I don't think Beijing necessarily regards that as contrary to its ability to control discourse power. Uh, they probably view that as a net positive, in my view. Can we take just one more quick question, Josh? Is that okay? 
We've just had one drop in the Q&A. Uh, this is from Courtney Bauerfeind. Hi, I was just wondering, as um, a lot of uh, extra-regional powers have become increasingly more interested in the Pacific, particularly the Pacific Island nations, how successful or unsuccessful do you think China's media influence has been in that region, if you know anything about it? Because I don't. I think their influence has been pretty successful. I mean, I think there are other things that are more successful in places other than most of the smaller islands, which has just been straight up infrastructure aid and cash. That's been the main driver. I do think that the media influence has probably played some role in prepping the ground for most of those countries to switch away from Taiwan to China. It's also probably played some modest role in pooling tensions in some of those countries about the way China's been pretty belligerent, especially in the last year and a half towards a number of Pacific nations, even as they have virtually won the battle for diplomatic recognition over Taiwan. Not completely, but I think that the media influence has had some effect in sort of mitigating some of China's really quite belligerent and frankly, counterproductive ways in which they've sort of been arrogantly treated a lot of those Pacific Island nations, which is certainly not unique to China. I mean, the United States has in the past, as has Australia, but it, it, and a lot of it is, you know, basically China's backyard. Now the United States is trying to push back from a pretty weak position compared to how much influence China has gained in the Pacific Island nation. That was Joshua Kalancic, Senior Fellow for Southeast Asia Council on Foreign Relations and author of Beijing's Global Media Offensive, China's Uneven Campaign to Influence Asia and the World. You have been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia. Please subscribe and leave a review on any podcasting platform. You can follow Josh on Twitter. He's at Josh Kalancic. And you can follow La Trobe Asia. We are at La Trobe Asia. This podcast was recorded and produced at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia, on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.